You know, everybody approaches their wedding day with an ideal of marriage in mind. We get up in front of everybody and we say those words until death do us part. And we really mean them because we just assume that our feelings of undying love will result in being happy together forever. The wedding day, in fact, is often thought of by many as being the beginning to happily ever after. But it normally isn't too long that we come to the starting, startling realization that marriage is nothing like a fairy tale. Ladies, how long did it take you to realize he's no Prince Charming? And because we can sometimes assume that, that marriage should just come easily or just sort of be natural, we can sometimes become disillusioned when the marriage relationship doesn't live up to the hype. So this morning, I want to take a look at a little more of the unglamorous side of marriage. Stripping away all of the lovey-dovey feelings, um, all of those ideals that maybe the romance novels has taught us, and instead really dig into some of the practical instruction that the Bible provides spouses for being happy together forever. Now, the unglamorous side of marriage actually isn't too difficult to find. All I had to do was go to Twitter and type in the hashtag married life, and it gave me a great snapshot of what real married life looks like, all right? So I want to show you a few of those this morning, like this one here. She says, someone failed to tell me that a lot of marriage is watching your spouse eating crumbs off their shirt from a ding-dong that they finished an hour ago. Does that sound like real life there? Or this wife says, why are you breathing like that? Ah, marriage. When you can be questioned for continuing to live. Or this guy pulls back the curtain on his wife in the shower. Are we, stop screaming, it's just me. Are we out of Cheetos? <laughs> My wife said I need to grow up. I was speechless. It's hard to say anything when you have 45 gummy bears in your mouth. <laughs> That's just married life for you. And sometimes it may not be quite what you expected. And my guess is that if I were to have you make a list of all the adjectives you could use to describe a good, even a godly marriage, you would probably list such words as love, joyful, caring, peaceful. But you might be surprised to know that the Bible describes marriage a little differently. The Bible says that a good, a godly marriage will be full of problems. 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's going to be there on the screen for you to read. Paul says this. He says, are you married to a wife? Do not try to get a divorce. Are you not married? (laughs) Don't look for a wife. (laughs) You know, we never see this verse printed on any of the uh, marriage gifts or wedding cards, do we? (laughs) Like just once, I would love to see a set of monogram towels with 1 Corinthians chapter 7 printed on it. Good. He continues. He says, if you do get married, you've not sinned. If a woman who is not married gets married, it's no sin. But being married will add problems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he says, I would like to have you free from such problems. So listen, if you are here this morning and you would say, oh, my marriage has got problems. Well, then congratulations. You have a very biblical marriage. (laughs) That's good news, isn't it? Now, the hope, of course, is that you wouldn't have to stay there, right? And Paul is not advising us to become complacent with, like, marriage problems. He's just sort of keeping it real and saying that marriage will require a lot of effort. See, his point in that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is that when we're single, remember, as he chose to be, it's easier To remain focused on God and pursuing purposeful things with our lives. You see, we can do what's best for us. And when we become married, well, it gets complicated. Then our concern isn't only for ourselves, but also for our spouse. And rightfully so. Now... I don't just think of what's best for myself. My wife can tell me what's best for me. (laughs) And I'm always concerned with what's best for my wife. And you know that concern for one another is actually one of the great many blessings that we have in marriage. You can write this down. A marriage is a blessing, or at least it should be. But the blessing isn't the goal. Marriage is a blessing, but the blessing isn't the goal. Now that may sound counterintuitive. Because when we get married, we likely do so with our own happiness in mind. And although our happiness is normally a good reason to enter into a marriage, it's just not a good enough reason to sustain a great marriage. Because when a couple says, I do, and they enter into that marriage covenant, describes it as such an intimate thing that man and wife are able to become one. And so what pains my wife begins to pain me. When my wife is happy, I begin to learn to be happy. And it's because of that process of becoming one. 
And it's that pursuit of oneness or the sense of togetherness that is able to tilt our focus in our spouse's favor. See, the real secret that the Bible shares to being happy together forever, that culture most of the time won't tell us, is that the byproduct of a marriage may be blessing, but the goal of a marriage is to be a blessing. To give more than we receive. It is to say, I am going to leverage all that I am, all that I have for their benefit. And this is an area in which our Christian lives should stand in stark contrast to the rest of society. Because our culture has no shortage of marriage advice. Oh, it is quick to readily offer tips and tricks to help us get what we want out of a marriage. And all of those sort of self-interest strategies will help us with our happiness in the short term, but normally lead to such frustration in the long term. The real truth is that happy together forever marriages are built on the foundation of sacrificial love. We're going to talk about that a little more just a little later on, but um, one of the things that I wanted to do first was just mention a couple of the lessons that we tend to learn from culture that actually conflict with this idea of a sacrificial love. And they lead us to make some wrong assumptions about marriage. The first wrong assumption that we can sometimes make is we'll think, I just have to find the right person. Isn't that what we so often base a successful relationship on? Finding the right person. And if we find the right person, will we think, that marriage then should just come easy, that it should sort of be effortless with the right person. And the danger in that is that when the marriage encounters problems, as the Bible says that it will, we can be tempted to sort of surrender to marriage rather than to really fight for it. Because we'll think to ourselves, well, Maybe I made a mistake. Maybe this isn't the right person after all. Or we can even take this a step further. And rather than calling them the right person, we'll refer to them mate. Ooh. The idea, this is the idea that God has the right person picked out for each of us. And all we have to do is find them. And that concept, listen, it makes for some incredible movie plots. 
But do you realize that the whole system begins to break down when just one person misses out on God's plan for them and marries the wrong person? Right? They will have married someone else's soulmate and just screwed everybody else up. <laughs> Domino effect. And so if you're here this morning and you're wondering, did I marry the right person? All you have to do is think back to the person that you said I do to. That's Mr. or Mrs. Right for you. And if that's you this morning, here's your encouragement. It's that healthy marriages are not so much based on who we marry as much as they are based on how we do marriage. It's true. And let me just say this. If you're single... Please don't misunderstand that to mean that it doesn't matter who you choose to marry, right? I mean, my expert pastoral advice here is don't be stupid. <laughs> That's how I counsel people. If you want to come to me for counseling, marriage, so I'm going to tell you. It's extremely important being selective in who you choose. You want to choose someone who, of course, you love, who you respect, who you admire, who you enjoy. And by the way, we're going to talk about this. We'll get in, we won't get into this, actually, later. But um, if you are single and you are a Christian and you are looking... And you are serious about following God with your life. You know, part of being selective in who you marry is looking for someone who is just as serious about following God with their life. Don't be stupid. So if you're single, here's, I, I added this special little uh, take-home bonus point for you here on the note sheet, all right? Stop focusing on the person you're finding and begin focusing on the person that you are becoming. Because guess what? If you are becoming more Christ-like, you will more naturally attract someone with those same kind of qualities. And so if you want to find or be someone who is kind, gentle, humble, generous, Focus on becoming that kind of person that you want to be with. Because guess what? That kind of person wants to be and is looking for you too. This actually, um, I know this point was for singles, but it actually works a little bit with spouses as well. Because you may already have your person, but when you grow in character, that will so often rub off on those around you. And so many times, a spouse can't help but be influenced by a wife or a husband who is spiritually growing. In fact, Peter, back in his book, in 1 Peter chapter 3, he kind of talks about this a little bit because he addresses those spouses who were in uh, marriages, arranged marriages, 
to non-Christian spouses, which was sort of the, the social norm back then. In fact, it was most common for a wife to be married to a non-Christian husband. And so he speaks specifically to the wives because they were in that situation. But he says, hey, focus on who you are becoming in God and see what that will do in your marriage. Here's another assumption that we will sometimes make of marriage. We will think, well, I'm always going to feel this way. And again, our culture would have us believe that if we fall deeply in love with the right person, well, everything is just going to work itself out because our feelings of love will always remain this strong. But feelings of love can be so fleeting. Feelings of love will always come and go. It's why you're talking, when you're talking to that couple who's headed for divorce, they will so often tell you, we just fell out of love. <laughs> well, of course you did. <laughs> Every couple does at some point. I mean, I can't tell you how many times my wife has felt so in love with me during the daytime, but come night, if I have kept her up with my snoring, oh, I will wake up in the morning refreshed. She has lost sleep. I will have to remind her of how much she loves me. <laughs> I remind her of the committed relationship that we're in. The author, Mignon McLaughlin, said this. It's pretty good. A successful marriage requires falling in love many times, always with the same person. See, remaining in love can't solely be left up to feelings. It's got to be a choice. And it's why the Bible actually always teaches love as a verb. It's not a noun in the Bible. Love is something that we do, not just feel. In fact, listen to the way that Paul would describe a biblical love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You may be familiar with this, and I know you still got your, your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll get there. But Paul would describe this biblical Love, what love really looks like in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, love is patient. It is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. Keeps no records of wrongs. Love doesn't delight in evil. It rejoices in the truth. It always protects it trusts, it perseveres. And you may notice with each of those descriptions of love that they're actually conscious decisions to make. They aren't things that we feel. They're actions that we take. For love isn't just something that we fall in and out of. It's the commitment that we make. And so we would take action because love is a verb. 
Now, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul addresses what that kind of committed love looks like in the context of marriage. And he begins the chapter by saying that Jesus is our ultimate example in love. We're reminded that Jesus leveraged all that he was, all that he had for our benefit by dying on the cross for our sins. That is true love. And Paul then applies that kind of love to our marriage relationships. And so in Ephesians 5.21, if you're following along, Paul says, hey, wives, husbands, listen up. This is what it looks like. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We better just pause right there. Because there are a lot of people who will read through now the words that follow and forget that this statement is the umbrella or the theme for them all. It's got that dirty little S word in it. Submit. And to who? One another. Husbands and wives are to submit mutually to one another. And at the time, in that Roman society that Paul is writing to, those words would have been seen as so radical, even offensive. I mean, it was a slap in the face to everything that that culture stood for. It was a society that was built on might. It was always a sure sign of who was in charge. It was a society where the strongest men ruled and husbands were sure to keep a tight rein on their household. Just to give you a little picture of the hierarchy of this society in a Roman court of law, a wife was viewed as the property of a husband, and so she had no say in how she was treated or what kind of decisions he would make for the family. And it was in, in the middle of that kind of society that Paul drops the S bomb submit to one another. Now, the idea of a submitting wife that was obvious. But for Paul to say that a husband should equally submit to his wife, you need to understand, was it was just, it was unheard of in that day. And so the only place that Paul could have possibly come up with such an idea was by at Jesus. By reflecting on the model that he has shown us. See, Jesus... Jesus was the most powerful man to walk the earth. I mean, if there was anyone who could exert their power in order to rise to the top, of course, it was him. And there were many of his followers who always encouraged him to do just that. They wanted him to become a political leader who would overthrow the Roman government by force and then set up a Jewish one. 
But Jesus used his power differently. With it, he instead chose to serve. And he submitted himself to God's plan, and he made us his priority. At its core, that's what submission really is. It's it's not about authority. It's not a result of weakness. Submission is just simply a matter of priority. So if I were to give you just a very simple definition of it this morning, it would be that submission is prioritizing someone above yourself. And so in verse 22, Paul's going to speak to the wives. He says, wives, this is what it's going to look like. He says, for wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. And as the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. Now again, this wasn't anything unusual. It was what was expected for the wives. And so Paul's giving them the same instruction that they always would have known of, but now... He's giving them a much different motive for it. And the motivation is key. Because wives, if you would like to submit because he deserves it, or because he's hardly ever wrong, Well, then you're going to find very few instances in which your submission is ever warranted. And so Paul's saying, now, now, ladies, as to the Lord, he says, because you are to submit, or you could say serve, or in other words, make him your priority only. Because of what Jesus has modeled to you in your relationship with him. In verse 33, if you read through that whole section, if you go down there, Paul gives a word that is to be a sort of example of what a wife submitting to a husband looks like. And so in verse 33, he says, wives, respect. Or think highly of him. What an effect a woman or a wife can have on a man when he feels that she thinks so highly of him. Listen, ladies, you can make him believe that he can do things that he's not capable of doing. But if he believes, he can can rise to that level. You know, when something uh, breaks in 
our home. This may sound a little foolish, but you know, as the man of the house, I feel a lot of pressure on myself. I know that it's, it's not realistic at all, but I just, I feel as though my wife and my kids look at me as if to say, what are you going to do about this? The kitchen sink won't drain. We can't live like this. The washing machine is broke. What are we going to do? We can't live like animals. And I, I can do, you know, like some things. I, I, I can do some handiwork around the house, but I am by no means a handyman. You see, I just did not get that rugged man gene when God was handing them out. And so when my wife comes to me with anxiousness in her voice to deliver some bad news, the washing machine is broke. I will begin to sort of feel like those insecurities over the pressure now to fix this problem. I'll say, I, I can try, but, you know, I mean, I, I don't know anything about washing machines. If, on the other hand, my wife comes to me with confidence in her voice, babe, the washing machine's down, but I told the kids that you can fix anything. <laughs> yeah, that's right, I can. Kids, you prepare to be amazed by your father's awesomeness, right? Now, I'm going to have to leave the room to go watch some YouTube DIY videos, but then I'm coming back and I'm fixing this thing. Wives, the way that you respect or think highly of us men will so often fuel us to become better men. And the way that you submit yourselves to us, even when we don't deserve to be submitted to, will oftentimes drive us to earn your trust in us to lead. And so wives, how can you prioritize your husband over yourself? Paul moves on. He talks to the husbands. Verse 25. He says, for husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. And in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. Now again, this, man, this was so controversial to say. It was a totally foreign idea that a husband would love and care for his wife as much as he cared for himself. Whereas he normally in that day and age, would have thought of him as being the priority of the family. He's now being told to mutually submit to the needs 
of his family. And the picture in there that Paul paints for us on the submission of a husband is sacrifice. The way to love her is to sacrifice yourself for her. Just as Jesus gave up his life for the church. And no one likes the idea of sacrifice. That always feels very uncomfortable to sort of completely just like disregard ourselves. And I tell you what, there is a brilliant mystery and God's instruction on submission to married couples. Because it is so often through the selflessness of sacrifice that we will often experience joy and blessing and we experience that for ourselves. It's an ironic twist. And it's because what we're doing is we're creating oneness. No one ever minds giving themselves to someone when they feel that they have their best interest in mind. I've never met a woman who said, I just have such a hard time loving and getting along with that man because he just, he serves me so much. <laughs> I've heard the opposite. I've never met a man who said, I get so sick of my wife reminding me how awesome I am. <laughs> I've heard the opposite. It's why mutual submission to one another is such a recipe for success in a marriage. When a, when a husband and a wife have this sort of endless competition to outserve or to sacrifice for one another, oh, that's the kind of relationship that everyone wants to be in and stay in, to be happy together forever. A while back, I read of this story written by a husband, and he was sharing sort of his marriage experience, and, um, and it was such a beautiful vision of the power of submission that I wanted to take the time this morning to, uh, to read it to you. He writes, for years, my wife and I struggled. Looking back, I'm not exactly sure what drew us together, but our personalities, <laughs> they didn't quite match up. And the longer we were married, the more extreme the differences seemed. Our fighting became so constant that it was difficult to even imagine a peaceful relationship. We became perpetually defensive, building emotional fortresses around our hearts. We were on the edge of divorce, and in fact, we spoke about it more than once. I was on a book tour when things came to a head, he writes, we just had had another big fight on the phone. She hung up on me. And I was lonely, frustrated, angry. In 
and I had reached my limit. That's when I turned to God or turned on God. I don't know if you could really call it prayer. Maybe shouting to God isn't exactly prayer, but whatever I was engaged in, I will never forget it. He says, I was standing in the shower of the hotel yelling at God that I couldn't do marriage anymore. As much as I hated the idea of divorce, the pain of being together was just too much. I was also confused. Couldn't figure out why marriage with her would be so hard. Deep down, I knew that she was a good person, and I was a good person, so why, why can't we just get along? Why had, why had I married someone that was so different than me? Why wouldn't she change? Well, finally, hoarse and broken, I sat down in the shower. I began to cry. And in my depths of despair, powerful inspiration came. I had this epiphany that I couldn't change her. I could only change myself. And at that moment, I began to pray. If I, can, if I can't change her, God, then change me. I prayed late into the night. I prayed the next day on the flight home. I prayed as I walked in the door to a cold wife who barely even acknowledged me. And that night, as we lay in our bed, inches from each other yet miles apart, inspiration hit me and I knew what I had to do. The next morning, I rolled over in bed next to my wife and I asked, how can I make your day a little better? She looked at me angrily. What? How can I make your day a little better? You can't, she said. Why are you even asking? Because I, I mean it, I said. I, I just want to know how I might be able to make your day a little better. She looked at me cynically. You want to do something? All right. Go clean the kitchen. She likely expected me to get mad. Instead, I just nodded. Okay. And I got up and I cleaned the kitchen. And the next day, I asked the same thing. What can I do to make your day better? Her eyes. Clean the garage. I took a deep breath. I already had a busy day. I knew that she had just made this request in spite. I was tempted to blow up at her, but instead I said, okay. And I got up and for the next two hours, I cleaned the garage. She wasn't sure what to think. The next morning came. What can I do to make your day better? Nothing, she said. You can't do anything. Stop asking that. I said, I'm sorry, but I, I've made this commitment to myself. And so I, I just need, I need to know how can I make your day just a little bit better? Why are you doing this? She asked. He said, because I care about you. And I've realized how much I care about our marriage. The next morning I asked again. And the next, and the next and then, during the second week, a miracle occurred. 
I asked the question, and my wife's eyes welled up with tears. Please stop asking, she said. You're not even the problem I am. I don't even know why you stay with me. I gently lifted her chin until she was looking into my eyes. He said, because I love you. Now what can I do to make your day better? She said, I should be asking you that. I said, well, you should, but not right now. (laughs) Right now, I need to be the one to change. I need you to know how much you and this marriage means to me. She put her head against my chest. I'm sorry I've been so mean. I love you, I said. I love you too, she replied. We laid there for a bit. And then I broke the silence. So what can I do to make your day just a little bit better? She looked at me sweetly. Can we maybe just spend some time together? I smiled. I'd like that. I continued asking this for more than a month. And things did change. The fighting stopped. And then she began asking me, what do you need from me? How can I be a better wife? The walls between us fell. We began having meaningful discussions on what we wanted out of life and how we could make each other happier. And no, we didn't solve all of our problems. I can't even say that we didn't fight again. But you see, the nature of the fights changed. Not only were they becoming more and more rare, but they lacked the energy that they once had. We had deprived them of oxygen. We just didn't have the energy to hurt one another anymore. My wife and I have been married now for more than 30 years, and I not only love her, but I like her. And many of the differences have become strengths, and the others don't really matter. We've learned how to take care of each other, and more importantly, we've gained the desire to do so. Marriage is hard, but so is parenthood and keeping fit and writing books and everything else important and worthwhile in my life. To have a partner is a remarkable Through time, I've learned that our experience was an illustration of a much larger lesson about marriage. The question everyone in a committed relationship should ask is, what can I do to make your life a little better? That's love. Romance novels are all about desire and happily ever after, but happily ever after doesn't come from desire, at least not the kind portrayed in the romances. Real love is not to desire a person, but to truly desire their happiness, their blessing, sometimes even at the expense of our own happiness. Real love is not to make another person a carbon copy of oneself. It is to expand our own capabilities of tolerance and caring to actively seek another's well-being. And all else is just simply a charade of self-interest. And so as a husband, what can you do to prioritize your wife over Yourself. 
We're going to take communion in just a moment. The worship team is going to come up. Before we leave today, though, I just want to acknowledge some of the pushback that comes when we would speak of any sort of message on submission. When it comes to improving any sort of relationship, see, submission, it always makes sense in theory, doesn't it? But the fear can so often be, well, if I submit to them, or if I sacrifice myself for them, if I make them the priority, what if it's not reciprocated? What if, even worse, I'm taken advantage of? And the truth is this. It's that submitting is always a giant risk to take. And when God would give us this instruction in our relationships to submit, aside from things like abuse and, you know, maybe things like that, but God's instruction tells us to do And it never advises us to become risk assessors. It only advises us to show us what, or to do what it is that has been modeled to us, which was Jesus. And if we're following Jesus when it comes to submission or relationship or whatever it may be, Jesus went first. So when it comes to relationships, when it comes to marriage, that would be my advice. If you would say, man, I feel stuck and I'm discouraged, be Jesus and go first. In 1 John 3, 16, it says, we know what real love is because Jesus gave his life for us. And in 1 John 4, 19, It says that we love Jesus because he loved us first. Celebrate through communion each week. We do it each week here at Journey just simply to take a time out and to remember what Jesus has modeled to us. And so we think back to what he did on the cross and a sacrifice that he made for our sins. And we take that bread and we take the juice that are just simply symbolic things to allow us to remember the body and the blood that he gave as a sacrifice for us. And we say, thank you, God, for the life that you have given and the life that you have modeled. So you can go this morning. You can, uh, I'm going to pray for you, but then you can take that on your own. The band during that is going to play a little song. You are welcome to reflect upon it, sing along with it. But let me pray. Lord, thank you, God, just for your word. And although this instruction is so difficult and so hard so often, oh, it sounds so good in theory. Lord, would you help us? Find ways in our relationships in which we can model Speak to us now, we pray. Maybe for a lot, God, would you allow healing to begin? 
Maybe it would even be a fresh start. We thank you, God, that you are the God of second chances, of third and fourth and so on. We thank you, God, that you are the God of fresh starts. And so would you be with us, speak to us now as we would celebrate your body, your blood through this time of communion and what you did on the cross in your name.